Well, amen. Well, thank you for that, Erica. Thank you for 99% of that. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I do want to just, uh, just say uh, just a word before we start um, about Memorial Day. You know, having grown up uh, in the military with my father, uh, being a, a colonel in the Army, I, I spent a lot, of, a lot of days on parade grounds and on military bases and uh, actually for two years, my dad was uh, in East Berlin, and I didn't see him. I didn't know he was in East Berlin. Um, he was in Army Intelligence, and uh, so I, I really have blanked out about my entire second and third grade year. I don't even have one memory of it, and I think that's the traumatic effect that the service for one's nation comes back on family. And we don't realize sometimes the price that's paid. I, I took a little journey down memory lane um, just to kind of re remind myself of some of the sacrifice. Our, our family came from Holland to United States, to America, uh, in the 1600s. And uh, one of our relatives uh, was actually a rifleman in the Revolutionary War. And you can go through almost every war. Uh, I was, you know, looking at... Captain Hotzenpeller, who served in the Union Army in the Civil War. And I was, you know, my uncle served in, uh, in World War I. He lied about his age, went into World War I, and was a part of that famous battalion known as the Lost Battalion that were trapped behind the Argonne Forest. And he was only one of a hundred and some men that came out alive. And so, you know, I, I, it, for me, it's a very, very deep-seated thing. Um, at the close of this service, we're going to show you a video uh, I, I mentioned to Tammy, I said, I wish we would have shot it a year ago, but uh, there's a guy in our church named Joe Robinson, and I, I just want to set this up, and we'll get into the message here in a minute. I've got plenty of time, okay, because I don't mind going over. Um, but uh, when I first met Joe, uh, Joe came to me, and he's, Joe's a part of our church, and he's, he's had a bit of illness over the last six or nine months, so he's not been with us uh, too often. But when I first met Joe, Joe uh, sat down with me and he said, I'd like to recruit you to be uh, a, a judge in a high school uh, speech contest. And I'm thinking, I said, Joe, do you do this? He said, yeah. And I, How old are you, Joe? And he said, I'm 90. And, and, uh, and he's still actively doing this. I said, well, Joe, what is your story? I didn't know anything about him. And he says, well, he said, uh, I was a fighter pilot in World War II. And then I was a fighter pilot in Korea, got shot down, got shrapnel on my leg, got the Purple Heart, and then I got out of the Air Force and uh, decided I would uh, further my education. So I got a PhD in physics for the University of Texas, and then I went to UCLA and got another PhD, and then I decided I need a little background in business, so I got an MBA at Harvard, and then I headed up the Apollo space program. Now here's the, here's the, here's the comet of a lifetime. And he looked at me and goes, so what's your story? I go, I got no story. I don't even want to talk right now. Are you kidding me? And he brought me some great pictures of, you know, standing in front of Apollo and, and, and just some of the people that he hired that, you know, that just are, are common names when it comes to the space world. And he actually wrote the proposal for the Apollo. I mean, it, it just amazing guy. And we, we have just a brief video we're going to show at the end of the service just as a reminder of... Uh, of just some of the significance that people have poured into, into our lives and into our world, uh, you know, not just from this field of, of ministry, but in this field of, 
of industry and space and military and all those things that, that all of you are a collective, uh, just part of a, of a great, great civilization that God has blessed. And sometimes we forget that that is the blessings of God. And this whole term of sec- sacred and secular was not invented by the secular world or by the, the outside the Christian world. It was invented by the Christians to somehow say we're, we're different and we don't want you in our group. So whenever you use the word sacred uh, or, or, or secular, you immediately, you know, kind of establish yourself as, you know, we don't really want you in our group. So I, I really wish we just quit using it. It's just not a good term. Okay. Is it okay if I can just kind of talk? It's kind of holiday weekend. I get to do whatever I want. It's my birthday, right? But um, so um, I heard the Pope was uh, arriving in New York, and uh, everybody was excited, and he was, of course, excited to be there, and the limo driver was there waiting for him. And so the Pope uh, went up to the limo driver, and he said, you know, I really want to drive. I never get to drive. And I always got to drive around in that Pope Mobile thing, and I, and I just want to drive in New York. And Limo Driver said, I can't do that, sir. You know, we're not licensed and bonded to allow you to drive. He said, please, please. And you know, how do you say no to the Pope? And so he goes, okay, you can drive. And Pope was not a very good driver, apparently, and, and sped quite a bit on the highway and got pulled over by a highway patrolman. And so the highway patrolman walks up, and uh, he knocks on the window, and he rolls down the window, and he looks, and he's just like shocked. He's just immediately shocked because he recognizes this is the Pope. He's got his hat on the whole deal. I mean, it just, it's happening right there in the limo, right? And he said, just a minute. And he goes back to the car, and he calls the chief. He says, chief, I got a problem. What kind of problem do you have? Well, I, got, I pulled over somebody very important. He said, well, is it the mayor? He said, oh, no, much more important than the mayor. Well, is it the governor? No, much more important than the governor. Well, is it the president? No, it, it's more important than the president. Well, who is it? Well, I'm not sure the Pope is driving, so it must be God. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about landmarks of God. You know, God, what God does is God puts landmarks in your life to, as demarcations of your spiritual journey. And if you're really aware of what God is doing, you'll mark those down and you'll say, there's a landmark, there's a demarcation of the hand of God in my life, because you'll need to go back to those as a memory, as a reminder that God is a God who works in your life. If you don't take note of them, what'll happen is you'll, you'll find yourself going through a dry spell in your spiritual journey And you'll say something like this, I'm not sure God is really that interested in me anymore. Or where is God in my life? Or what is God doing? I haven't seen his hand. But what God wants you to do is to really be able to go back and look at those landmarks. He even told Israel that I want you to mark out some of these things in your life. Israel was instructed to build monuments that would remind them of some things. They needed to be reminded of the invasion, the provision, and the work of God in their lives. Without those things in their life, they couldn't really attest to what God was up to. I love the comment that's found in the journey of Israel when they're going through the wilderness, and there's a cry that comes more than once in a different, in a different way, but basically this is the story. God, would you show up? 
Don't let our enemies say about us, where is their God? I pray that a lot. I say, God, I want you to show up in my life because I don't want the enemies of God to ever say, where is their God? I want to see the works of God, the miracles of God, and the hand of God in my life so that those who oppose God are drawn in to the life of God. So they're transformed by the power of God. You see, the invasion of God, when he comes, he comes in the unexpected. Whenever God invades my life, I don't expect it. I go, wow, that's, that's interesting, God, and why did you do that, or why did you bring that person in my life, or what are you up to, God? God likes to invade your life. I like to call him Jehovah Sneaky. He seems to sneak up and come in behind you and go, oh, yeah, by the way, I'd like to talk to you today about something. We also understand something about the providence of God. The word providence is a, is a word, it's actually a Latin word, but it means the, the idea of pro is something that's ahead of, and viter is where we get our word video. It's something that's seen ahead of. It's actually a word that was used throughout some of the founding documents of the American uh, experiment here. And it was a direct reference to God. God was called providence. You'll see George Washington use it throughout his, some of his letters and some of his writings. He talks about the providence of God. And what he was really saying was he was talking about God's ability to see all things at one time and know all things at one time. He was talking about the omniscience of God, the providence of God. You see, God is provident. You might not think God knows what's up in your life, but he does. You might think God doesn't, doesn't understand the future, but he does. He, has, he understands all things at one time. Simultaneously, he, he assesses everything and has a plan for everything. The work of God in our lives is what God wants to do. God wants to work in your life. When we say that, sometimes we imagine it must be some big thing that God does. No, God wants to work in your life in the little things where somebody gets under your skin and God can work in that situation. That's the work of God. The work of God doesn't have to be him dividing the Red Sea for him to work in your life. The word shalom, the Hebrew word shalom means that, that may you experience the blessings of God in all areas of your life. May nothing be missing and nothing be broken in your life. Shalom. The Pharisees used to say that shalom means that may your children grow up handsome with no crooked teeth, may your wife never burn your food, and may you experience prosperity in all that you do. That's shalom. That's the favor of God. We should be praying the favor of God over our life so that nothing is broken, nothing is missing, that all things work together in such a way that we are a testimony and, and we testify of the goodness of God. We sang about the goodness of God. God is good. Only God is good. Our goodness is only a reflection of his goodness in us. Our holiness is only the holiness that he imparts to us and imputes to us through his spirit. That's all it is. G.K. Chesterton, if you've never read, he, brilliant man, extremely brilliant. Um, he, he was the man that, that influenced C.S. Lewis to come to faith in Christ. 
Cheslin said this, when people stop believing in God, they do not believe in nothing, they believe in anything. We're living in a day when people believe in anything. The last verse of the book of Judges says that there was no king in Israel and every man did that which was right in his own eye. That's what Chesekin was talking about. When you reject the king, Jesus, then everything becomes plausible and acceptable in your life. Then everything becomes justifiable in your life. There is nothing that, that keeps you from anything, and that is absolutely the definition of the end of the age, which is called lawlessness. If there is no law of God in your life, then there is lawlessness, and that opens a door for the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, who's coming. I was reading, uh, I was thinking about this, and this is not in my notes. I, I just, I thought about it as, as I was hearing the songs today, and I, I, thought, um, I thought Whitney and Melody did a great job. Would you put your hands together for them? <laughs> Amen. You know, we have so much talent. You know, it just, um, I'm, I'm beginning to think maybe it's rubbing off on me and maybe I'll lead worship next week. I don't know. I, I just, I'm feeling so good about it right now. But, in, uh, but let me just take you on a couple of scriptures here. If you have your Bibles, open them to the book of Job, the book of Job. I, I led a guy to Christ one time, and, and uh, he said, what do I do? And how, where do I go? I start reading the Bible, and he said, okay, when I finish that, what do I do? And I said, well, if you just finish reading it and master it, then come see me, and we'll, I'll give you another assignment. And he called me one day, and he goes, hey, I'm reading this book of Job, and um, and I don't see any jobs in here, and I really want to serve God. And he was just totally serious. And I, I thought that was one of the funniest things I'd ever heard in my life, the book of Job. But it does make sense. It looks like Job. Um, you know, we look at Job. Have you ever heard anybody say, you know, I feel like I'm living the life of Job? I, anybody ever felt like Job? I mean, seriously, this guy had it so bad, I don't know if anybody could have it that bad, right? Why did that happen to Job? You see, the Bible says that he was the most righteous man in the East. It doesn't say he was the most righteous man. You see, in Scripture, whenever, whenever the Spirit of God is moving, he's always moving east to west, and east is, is always a picture of those in rebellion. Now, stay with me on this one. Lot went east into Sodom. Abraham went west. Lot established a home in Sodom, a permanent residence. Abraham wandered looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He lived in tents. He never, set, he never established earth as his home because he knew that there was a heavenly city that was beyond that. Now, here's what's interesting. Abraham and Job were contemporaries. They lived at the same time. Even though the book of Job is about in the middle of your Bible, it actually belongs over in about Genesis chapter 15. Now put all this together. So here's Job. He's the most righteous man in the East. He's extremely blessed in terms of financially. He actually is pretty tied into, into God because he makes a sacrifice and prays for his children on a daily basis. My, my assumption is he knew his kids were a bunch of rebels and he needed to do a little extra time for them. I really believe that's true. But now, look at Job, if you will. Just take your Bibles and look at Job chapter 3 and verse uh, 25. You know, we say this, and a lot of times people don't really 
take it in. Uh, I think Melody said it earlier, but the words of our mouth, they're life. What are you speaking over your life? Now watch Job. Why did the thing happen to Job that he said? Look at Job chapter uh, 3 and verse 23. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I believe some people literally bring stuff on them, meaning they bring on them disease, they bring on them discouragement, they bring on, on enemies, they bring on things by the words of their mouth. Job says, the very thing I feared. He lived in fear that what, what happened to him happened to him. And every day he was processing this. What if, what if, what if? I don't know, I don't know. What if I lose all I have? What if I lose my children? What if, what if, what if, what if? And it became a self-fulfilling prophecy because remember, when God created you in his image, he created you with the power of speech. He didn't create anything else Anything else on planet Earth with speech. He created man with speech. This ability to communicate and to speak and to be creative. The thing, the words of your mouth are creative words. That's why the Bible does tell us that, you know, the, the words of our mouth are either life or either death. Now, just take your Bible and go with me over to chapter 9 and verse uh, 32 and 33. Here's what he says. Speaking of, he says, he's, he's struggling with life. What do I do? How do I connect with God? And here's what he says. For he is not a man as I am that I may answer him. You know what Job wanted? Job wanted to be able to sit down with God and talk to God and say, God, could we have an understanding? Could you explain what's going on in my life? Because I don't get it, God. I felt like there was a hedge of protection about me. You blessed me. You took care of me. You did everything right. And now, God, I don't understand. Could we just sit down? And look what it says here. He is not a man that I am, that I may answer him, or that we should go to court together, nor is there a mediator between us who will lay his hands on us both. You know what a mediator is, a go-between? You know who the mediator is for you? It's Jesus. You know who his heart was crying out? He was crying out for Jesus. Later on, he'll say, I know my Redeemer lives, and one day upon the earth will stand. He knew there was a coming God to earth, and he lived in the time of Abraham. We're going to talk a little bit about redemption, about the kinsman redeemer here in a minute, but uh, let, let's just let's keep moving here. Go to, uh, <laughs> go to Job chapter 42. This is so off the radar right now. I'm just like, you know, one day what I'd like to do, I'd like to do a service where we just just take the whole time from 9 to 12 and just have one service. You kind of come as you want, and we'll teach the Word of God. We'll sing. We'll take an offering, maybe two or three of them. I don't know. But, <laughs> but uh, and just really just kind of process some things in life that as the Spirit of God directs. Would you, would you all want to do that sometime? Would you come to that? I mean, you could come for like 10 minutes and leave, you know, or you could come for, you know, you know, two hours. I mean, you know, it's up to you. It's, a, it's how much you could endure and how good it is, right? Amen. Okay, Job 42. Um, Job comes to this understanding in verse 1. He said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Now, you, you know what? Here's what Job's affirming. He's affirming that God is God. The first rule of living is God is God and you're not. That's the first rule. If you don't get that one right, you're off the reservation completely. The second one is this, God does what he wants, when he wants, to whom he wants. The third rule is more powerful than the first two. It is that, and God doesn't have to give an explanation because when you're on your resume is the name God, you get to do that. If you get those three things right, I promise you, your life is going to be so much simpler. 
If you miss one of those, you're going to be complicated. Okay, so here's what he says. He says, I know that about God. And then it says, you ask, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Verse 2, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Job says, you know what? I've been talking stuff that I didn't get. I've been saying things about God that weren't true about God. I thought I knew God. I didn't really know God. I thought I knew what God was like, but I guess I was wrong. And we have a tendency to do that as believers. We get in our little Christian huddles, and we listen to our little Christian music, and we read our little Christian literature, and we've got God in a box, and we think that's how God operates. See, God's not like that. He says, my ways are not your ways. My ways are past finding out. I was talking to staff this week. We were talking about Elijah and Elijah, you know, he came to King Ahab, and he says, King, it's not going to rain till I say it's going to rain. Now, that's a pretty bold declaration of faith. Amen? It's not going to rain till I say it's going to rain. And here's what God does. God says, hey, I want you to go down to the brook, and I'm going to feed you there. I'm going to take care of you there. You're going to drink water from the brook. There's going to be water coming from that brook. And I'm going to send ravens to feed you bread and meat. It's the weirdest story in the world. And here's why it's weird. Because a raven is an unclean bird. A raven feeds off of that which is dead. So God takes a Jewish boy, he sends an unclean bird who's going to basically get meat from something that's dead and bring it to him to feed him. And then the other way he's going to supply it, ravens don't bake bread. Is that a revelation to some? Ravens do not break bread, so he's sending ravens out to steal bread from somebody who's baking bread. Hello? Hello, that's what God did. And you're going to do that until, until that brook dries up, and then I'm going to have another plan for you. Then he has the other plan. He takes him, and he sends him over to a city, and he says, I'm going to send you over to a widow who's getting ready to die. She's got a little bit of, just got a little bit left, a little bit of water, a little bit of flour, and you go up to her and tell her you're supposed to feed me. Now, that would be the equivalent of I'm walking out in the lobby, and there's a woman there who's getting ready to be evicted. She's been in our church from the beginning. She's a widow. She's got no money, and she says to me, Pastor, I need some help. Can you help me out? And I say, what do you have? And she says, I've got a little bit of, of, little bit of money. And I say, well, give it to me. You see, here's the problem. You think there's something wrong with that because you don't think like God. If you thought like God, you'd understand that when you sow, you reap. You think it's all about reaping. It's about sowing. If she didn't sow, she couldn't reap. You see, there's a divine law in the kingdom, and it doesn't work like your accountant works. See, God has a different set of ledger books. All right, back to Job 42. I'm sorry. This might be one of those services where we just go two hours, they come walking in after the second service, and they go, what's going on? Oh, he's still going, I don't know. He says here, um, verse 4, listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I, have a, I will question you, and you shall answer me. And look what Job says. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Job comes through 42 chapters of his life, 
He's a picture of the, of the Jews going through the tribulation, 42 months of the great tribulation. He sits in mourning for seven days. There's seven years in the great tribulation. The book of Job precedes the book of Psalms. Psalms is all about the millennium. The book of Job is about the tribulation. And he says to the Jew, and he's saying to the Jew, the Jew said, I heard about you at the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. See, that's what, that's what tribulation does for you. That's what it's going to do for the Jews during the tribulation. They're going to go, I heard about you, the hearing of the ear. All the time I heard it, I heard it. You spoke the word, but now I see you. See, when you see God with your spiritual eyes, you understand what he's been up to. If all you do is hear the words of God, say, oh, yeah, I heard about that, then you miss out on who, God's, who God really is. Now, look what Job does. Now, he comes to, remember, the most righteous man in the east, but look what happens in verse 6. Therefore, I abhor myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. See, I thought I knew about you, but you know what? Now I don't know. I didn't know about you, but you know what I'm going to do now? Now, I'm gonna, now, I see, now that I see you, I see myself properly. Until you see God right, you can't see yourself right. See, there is one thing, and without self-revelation, I can't make a change. Without God-revelation, I can't be transformed. I can change by self-revealing, but I cannot be transformed without the revelation of God. This just gets so good. Look at this. And so after this, the Lord had spoken the words of Job that he said to Eliphaz. Now, Eliphaz was one of his three friends. He had three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And these guys were all giving different advice about what, was, what God was like. All of them were wrong. I'm going to tell you that most of your friends are going to be wrong. The guys who offer the most advice, they're usually the ones that have, the most, have it wrong the most. I, it's, I mean, just look back on life. It's true. Unless they're pointing you to the book and to the spirit and to God, they are probably got it wrong. They've got to be pointing you that way. They can give you wisdom. They can direct you. But ultimately, it's going to be God's going to give you the right answer. Now, look what it says here. God says of Eliphaz, my wrath is, uh, uh, is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me uh, what is right, as has my servant Job. So Job just got it right, he said. All right? Now, let me just, let me just go up a little bit further. Look at verse 10. And the Lord restored Job's losses. You see the next word? You got your Bible open? It's the word when. When he prayed for his friends. He didn't restore it because he repented. He restored it because he prayed for his friends whom he'd held in bitterness. You won't see the, you won't see the favor of God if you hold bitterness in your heart. If you've got resentment toward anybody in your life, you'll never see the full favor of God. You've got to release it. You say, but you don't know what they did. doesn't matter what they did. Do you know what you did to God? If he forgave you, why wouldn't you forgive them? Or maybe you got something over on God. God, you know more than God, and you, therefore you think you can hold bitterness in your heart, resentment and unforgiveness in your heart, and God's going to bless you. He will not. We've got a lot to cover here before this sermon comes. Look at verse 12. Let me just hit this, and then this is, this is the introduction. Verse 12, now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. If you think Job had it good in the first chapter, 
He said he blessed him more. If you look at what he had, he had double. When you take stuff out of your life and you put God into your life, God will give you double what you had before. You can say, well, I have it pretty good right now. Then you, are, you have a poverty mindset because you don't know what God can do. God wants to double everything you've got going on in your life. Amen? Do you receive that? All right. Now let's look at the sermon for today. Proverbs, it fits right in. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 10 through 12. Do not remove the ancient landmark. When Israel went into the land, God said this land is going to be for each tribe. The only tribe that didn't get land was the, was the priestly tribe of Judah. God would be their inheritance. They had no inheritance in the land. God said, I'll be your inheritance. Now, when you go in there, the tribes are going to be marking out. They're going to put landmarks. because say this is going to be for the tribe of, let's say, Issachar. And then they're going to divide that down by families. And they would put those ancient landmarks. And the idea was those landmarks could never be moved. In other words, you could never become rich and take someone's land. And if, you, if they sold your land, it would be restored to them back in the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, it would go back to the family. Isn't that neat? You see, it's a spiritual principle that God will restore unto you. You might lose for some time, but God's ultimately going to always bring it back. He's always going to restore it, bring it back to you. Now, look at this. Nor enter into the fields of the fatherless. You know what that is? Someone loses their father. He can't defend the land, so the wife is there, the kids are there, and somebody comes in and says, I'll take over your land, and there's nothing you can do about it. He says, don't enter into the lands of the fatherless. For their redeemer is mighty. Whose redeemer? The fatherless. If you're without a father, I want you to know God steps in and does some extra work for you. You know, a lot of people have been, you know, a lot of people, they had a bad father. Their father's absent. They were, they were adopted. My, my grandmother was adopted. Tammy's mother was adopted. Hey, you know what? Somebody stepped in and played that piece, and if they weren't there, the father did. And he says, he will plead their cause against you. Apply your words to instruction and your ears to the word of knowledge. Have you had a word of knowledge yet? God says, let me speak a word of knowledge to you about this. It's a word from the word. It's where God gives you insight into your situation that nobody else can give you because it came by the Spirit of God. See, all of us are orphans. Everyone in here is an orphan without God. Alienated from our Heavenly Father, but the Redeemer, the Redeemer rescued us from the fields of the fatherless. See, we're living in the midst of a, of, of a fatherless generation who need the guidance and direction to maintain focus on what's important, and that is pursuing Christ. Without fathers and mothers to guide us into that realm, we, we, we miss it. So he said, uh, their redeemer. That's the word, the idea of a kinsman redeemer. Let me explain to that. So let's say that, um, let's say that I had a brother, and uh, my brother died, and his wife was there and had three kids. It would be my responsibility, if I were qualified, to be the redeemer. I would be the kinsman redeemer. I would go and marry my brother's wife. Hopefully I liked her. You say, what if you had another wife? You get another, you see in the Old Testament, you, got, you could have a couple extra wives. Okay? You see, God has two wives. Israel's called his wife. The church is called his bride. You say, how does that work? I don't know. 
Okay, to be a kinsman redeemer, he had to be qualified as a kinsman. What does that mean? He had to be a male. He had to be a relative. And he must be free himself. See, the Bible says, he who the son sets free is free indeed. So our kinsman redeemer came. Job says it in 19, I quoted earlier, 1925, for I know that my redeemer lives and he shall at last stand upon the earth. That kinsman redeemer also had to be able to perform the task. That is, he had to be able to pay the price. So he says, all right, well, your, your brother owed X number of dollars. The kinsman had to be able to pay the price. Listen to what it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 20. For you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish, without spot. For he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last days. You see, our kinsman redeemer could pay the price with his own blood. Hebrews chapter four, uh, 2 and verse 14, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. If you have a fear of death, you haven't understood their kinsman redeemer yet. The only people who fear death are people who don't understand their redeemer. The fear of death is given to the sons of man, not to the sons of God. That's why Paul said, you know, I'm hard-pressed. I don't know whether to, you know, to remain with you, that's really good, but, or to die and go on and be with God. He was facing, you know, going to the lion's den there in Rome. And he said, you know what, I'm really hard-pressed hard on this one. Would you be hard-pressed? Or would you scrap for every day of your life to live? Would you fear death? I'm, I'm so afraid of dying. Give it up. It doesn't do any good. Be a son of God. He had to be willing. The kinsman redeemer had to be willing. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him. You know what? He endured the cross, the joy of the cross. He said he endured the cross. Listen to this. Despising the shame has set down at the right hand of the Father. You know, we have monuments. Arlington uh, Cemetery, my, my, my dad and mom are both buried there. My dad was buried there with full military honors in 2001, right after 9-11. Right at the top of that, of that uh, cemetery, you could look down into the Pentagon. You could see where the plane had gone in. And there was my dad. He was in Calvary first. My dad, I, as I told you, my dad was uh, 50 when he had me, so he had a pretty good life. Um, but he went, into the, uh, he went into the military first in 1924, and he was riding horses. I mean, I mean, it just, it, it doesn't even seem possible. And so when they lined that, that case on up and they had those horses there, they had eight horses and they had seven of them with riders, and on the eighth one they had his boots in backwards. They had 23 members of a band playing there as they marched down and green berets were his pallbearers and the, the wife of the, uh, of the Joint Chief of Staff presented my mom with flag. I guess my dad was more important than I thought he was. See, there's a spiritual principle there. The father is more important than you think he is. But in Arlington, there, there are soldiers there that, that over this weekend will put 230,000-plus flags at the places of graves. They'll play the trumpet. They'll shoot off the guns. But one day I want you to know the trumpets will sound and the dead will hear his voice. 
They'll hear the shout of the archangel. They'll hear the voice of God Almighty. And they will rise. They will shake the dust and the dirt off of their clothes. They will be clothed in new garments, white as snow. They will rise to meet Christ in the air, and they will sing a new song, a song of victory. They'll not be in the army of, the, of man. They'll be in the army of God, and he will come with a sharp two-edged sword from his mouth, riding upon a white horse, and he will proclaim with a new name, I am King of kings and Lord of lords, and all will sing a new song on that day. Amen? Amen. Give him glory. If you can't put your hands together for that, then you are dead. You need to check your pulse. See, monuments stir up the work of God in us. Bill Johnson said the testimony of God creates an appetite for more of the activities of God. Expectation grows wherever people are mindful of his supernatural nature and his covenant. When the expectation grows, miracles increase. When the miracles increase, testimonies increase as well. You see, the apostles followed this principle. They would not be silenced. When they were ordered to not preach, they preached. When they were threatened, they stood. When they were whipped for their faith, they rejoiced. When they were put in prison, they sang. When they were persecuted, they grew stronger. When they were thrown in the fire, they refused to burn. When they were stoned to death, they saw Jesus. How does it get any better than that? We have to renew our courage for this day that we live in. We're living in, in tenuous times at the end of the age, but it is the church that will become brighter and brighter in these dark days. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 12, the Bible says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven allows forceful aggression, and the forceful establish it by aggression. I want you to know the kingdom of God doesn't come because you're meek and mild. The, the, the kingdom of God comes because you take the, the situation at hand in the power of God and you say, my God is able, instead of saying, oh my, what are we going to do? Look how bad things are getting. Things have always been bad, friend. What are you going to do to stand in the power of Almighty God? we got to raise up a courageous generation. Are you courageous? Would somebody look in your Christian life and say, I am a courageous Christian? Or would they say, well, you know, religion is just something personal. You just keep it to yourself. That gives me a pain I can't locate. Really, it does. I mean, have you read the Bible? These guys were so bold, they made everybody mad. Right? We need to raise up a courageous generation. You know, here's how you do it. Let me write these three things. First of all, first of all, you have to have a heart to see others succeed. You have to have a heart to see others succeed. When Pastor Nate's up here preaching, I just thrills my heart. When I, when I see uh, Whitney and when I see Melody and when I see Drew up here leading worship, it thrills my heart. You know why? Because I have a heart to see people succeed. Because we want to reproduce kingdom followers. We also have to, if you're going to raise up a courageous generation, you have to establish a culture where it's okay to fail. If you have to always get it right and always be perfect, then you never try. You have to be willing to run in the race. You have to be willing to say, you know what, I'm going to give it my best, and if I fail, then I'll learn from it and I'll keep moving. I mean, think about Jesus. He got these 12 disciples. I mean, talk about a bunch of guys who didn't know what to do. 
I mean, on one occasion, they came back and they reported to Jesus and said, hey, I got some good news for you. We saw some disciples and they weren't a part of our group, so we'd like to call fire down from heaven and consume them. Now, what kind of Christians are those guys? No, 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 you know, they're, if they're not against us, they're for us. Don't, don't get all up. Don't get all messed up because they're not just like you. Well, you know, I was talking to this one believer, and then they, they baptize babies. All right. What's your point? Well, I saw this one, and they don't believe the same thing about the return of Christ. Okay, what's your point? That's your life? That's what you've got to spend your life on when people are dying and going to hell, and you're worried about somebody's minor doctrine? We got bigger issues. If you're going to raise up a courageous generation, you have to be marked by passion, by creativity, and by innovation. You have to be marked by passion, creativity, and innovation. You have to be thinking all the time, how do we reach people? How do we touch people? How do we change lives from people? We were at the Bethel Conference this, uh, this week, and uh, I think two or three women came up to Tammy and said, aren't you, Tammy, I went to the conference, the women's conference that you had in January. I thought, marked by innovation, creativity, and passion. I get up to, to go uh, uh, check on something, and as I'm coming out, this guy walks up to me, and he says, aren't you Pastor Phil? And I said, I am, and he shook his hand, and, and he kind of flinched a little bit when I shook his hand. He said, I'm sorry, I broke my elbow. He said, but I said, well, if you've been to influence, he said, I haven't, but I've heard about what you're doing, and I'm going to come visit. And I said, well, that's great. And he said, yeah, I broke my, my arm. And I said, can I just pray for you right now? And so I'm standing there amidst 5,000 people, and I'm praying for this guy named Larry. God, I just pray for Larry. I pray the pain will go away. And he, he goes, I don't have any pain. You say, what happened? I don't know. You want the miracles of God to be so spontaneous that you're, you're not planning out, hey, well, you know, we, we're going to get together and plan out what God's going to do. No, just let God be God. Just live in the spirit of God and the flow of God. See what God unfolds in your path. We have to honor the sacrifice of others. I love this word of Abraham Lincoln. He said, it's a day, it is the duty of nations as well as men to owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God. Doesn't look like he had a problem with church and state. And to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Amen? Amen. It was Ben Franklin who proposed that uh, Congress be opened with prayer. He said, I've lived a long time. The longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that unless the Lord builds a house, they who labor in vain, they who build it labor in vain. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? See, American is so, America is so Christian in its foundation Go back and read about the faith monument in Plymouth. The faith monument with scriptures in one hand and faith in the other. We're going to talk about it on July 4th. We're going to have a good, fun time. 
Here's what landmarks do. They ignite our passion and they inspire us to move to greater heights. When I see a monument, I go, I can do that. Look what you put in me. We envision a great nation, a great community, a great family. We envision a church that carries out the Great Commission. We join hands and we will pay any price to be a part of what God is doing. We will channel our time and our resources and our lives to advance the kingdom of God, a place where the Bible is our wisdom, where heaven and earth meet, where we influence others, where we defend the freedom of all people regardless of the color of their skin, where we live in the power of the Spirit and we don't quit until Jesus comes back where we live, monuments, they, what they do is they increase our expectation for the miraculous. Bill Johnson put it this way, religion idolizes concepts and avoids personal experience. It works to get us to worship past accomplishments at the expense of any present activity of God in our life. Okay, I'm about out of time, so you'd have to listen to this next 20 minutes of my message quickly because I can do this in about three minutes. Okay, you ready? Write this down. It's going to be on the screen. Expect to see, expect to see what he wants us to see. Now let that sink in a minute. Leave that up for a minute. Expect to see what he wants us to see. I expect to see, God, what you have in front of me. Faith thrives in seeing the impossible. Your faith will not rise. You can't say, God, just give me more faith. No, your faith only increases when you see the impossible. That's when it goes up. And you have to release the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Just say, God, I just, I, just Holy Spirit, will you just be released in me? Okay, here's a couple of life applications. Courage and faith work together. Joan of Arc, if you've ever read the real story of Joan of Arc, it's an amazing story. She said, uh, um, move and God will move. When they came to arrest her, she was about a 14 or 15-year-old girl. She was finally arrested by the French. They said, we can't have this woman living out all this, this faith in her life. So we've got to do something with her. And she, they came to her and they said, if you come, she said, if you come in the name of, um, of God, I, I, I do not fear you. If you come in the name of Satan, then I fear you even less. I like that. Miracles are awaiting release. They're just waiting. They're standing at the door. It's kind of like, have you ever, you ever got somebody a birthday present? I mean, I'm not saying it's my birthday or anything, but have you ever got anybody a birthday present? You can't wait to give it to them? You know, I, I'll get something for my wife. If I happen to actually get it in advance instead of the day of, man, are, are you with me on this one? I mean, I just want to confess right now there's been a lot of things. Thank God for Amazon Prime. I can get it the next day. But have you ever had like a, like a gift and you just couldn't wait? You just say, hey, I got your gift. Well, I know, but tomorrow's my, I know, I know, but don't you want it? And my wife is the best of delaying that stuff. Drives me crazy. Don't you want it? Don't you want it? I can wait. No, no, I'm going to go get it. And I'll just set it there. I'm not, you don't have to open it, but there it is. You know, it's kind of like, there's the apple. 
Eve, see, gifts wait to be opened. Miracles wait are waiting at the door for you. They're waiting. All you got to do is just say, you know what? Miracles are waiting. Release. Why don't I just release some stuff in my life and in my world? I love that little exercise of, you know, think about the, the issues that you're facing, the problems you're facing, and just sing good over it. Just sing good over it. Amen? Let's stand together. Just close your eyes, bow your heads. and Thank you for uh, allowing me to do a couple of different messages today, and hopefully you got something out of some of it. I don't, it'll be all different next service, so you might just want to hang around and see what I do next. God, I, uh, I, I just ask every person in this room right now to ask you, Spirit of God, just to apply one thing that you heard from the message, from the Word, or from the Spirit. What's the one thing I need to leave with today? The one thing. You only need one thing. You don't worry about remembering everything I said. Everything I said is not important. What's important is how the Spirit speaks to you and how He applies that to your life. That's the only thing that's really important here. And that that one thing is transformational in your life. It changes you. It brings you closer to Him. It gives you hope and courage and power. What is that one thing? What is that one thing? I'm going to ask the worship team just to sing through this song just one time. And I want you just to remain with your heads bowed and just let them sing over you, okay? And ask the Spirit of God, what is the one thing, just one thing I need to leave here with today?